My presentation is entitled War on the Red Plague, Montana's Battle Against Venereal Disease. I do have a PowerPoint. I promise there's nothing too scandalous in it. We'll go ahead and get started. Oddly enough, we're going to start on September 12th, 1919, which I know is after the war, but I promise we'll circle back around. Um, and on September 12th, 1919, the fair had just ended in Helena. Woodrow Wilson had been greeted warmly, more warmly, the Helena Independent noted, than in when he visited North Dakota. <laughs> Nearly 20,000 people attended the fair, setting a new attendance record. And Wilson spoke at the Marlowe Theater on peace and cooperation and a new League of Nations. Almost simultaneously, Helena Sheriff Huffaker tossed out the dragnet in an effort to gather up alleged bootleggers. Officials recognized that Fair Week was an ideal time to make an example of seven institutions violating the prohibition laws. Police arrested the female proprietors of seven rooming houses, including the Bristol, which is, well, which is pictured here, charging them with running houses of prostitution. The women arrested were held without bail under the law passed by the 16th Legislative Assembly, providing for the detention in quarantine of any person or persons suspected of having a venereal disease. Waiting at the jail were several state officials, officials from the U.S. Public Health Bureau, the State Board of Health, the Attorney General, and Assistant Attorney General. In this daring raid, the deputies confiscated a bottle of whiskey and another small quantity. The newspaper took care to note that it was an unusual number of women in the jail, especially with the fair in town having commandeered many of the available cots, so they managed to cram 41 women in a cell made for six. And that led, two days later, to the Lewis and Clark County Board of Health staging a bit of a protest of their own. The County Board of Health decried the midnight raid, stating emphatically that the health regulations are entirely separate from bootlegging and prostitution violations and should not have any political motive. The county health officials also called the jail conditions meant to house six, currently housing 41, nothing short of disgraceful. The county had a perfectly good detention hospital, officials continued. The treatment of venereal disease, they said, is a matter of education and does not contemplate sens sensational midnight raids. The only goal of the venereal disease law was to protect the health of the community. So my presentation today kind of explores how Montana came to this very strange intersection of public health law and then the enforcement of those laws um, and how that sort of affected both these 41 women who were arrested and how it changed sort of the broader legal landscape um, and health landscape of the states. So, we started after the war. Now we're going backwards to about 1914. And the reason for that is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the American <coughs> Social Hygiene Association, or the ASHA. Um, they were dominated, their boards were dominated by members of the new professional classes, and its organizational agenda underscored a sense of unease with widespread vice and prostitution. They were chartered in New York City, but they almost immediately had a national agenda. And everywhere they went, they sponsored programs of education. And then also, they created model laws that they were asking states to enforce. Um, and they also provided pamphlets and all of these materials, hoping that their programming would sort of be adopted by other agencies. And their role became most important um, when 
their scientific journal caught the attention of uh, national reformers on the eve of World War I. Now we circled back around. But this is on the national level. Um, almost immediately after the war, Woodrow Wilson created what he called the Commission on Training Camp Activities. There was a recognition um, even then that venereal disease was causing a huge loss of manpower days, especially among the European forces. Um, in Over the course of the war for American soldiers, it would end up costing 6,804,818 days of active duty um, treating men who had venereal disease, which was almost four and a half times the rate of lost days to any other disease that they were currently suffering from. Ultimately, about one in 10 men in the entire armed forces had either syphilis or gonorrhea. And so Woodrow Wilson and his various officials of the Army and Navy recognized this was a huge problem. It was a huge problem. They weren't sure what they were going to do about it. And the Commission on Training Camp Activities, headed by an American Social Hygiene Association reformer, sort of set out to both educate soldiers um, and then to offer them sort of a different course, one based uh, on abstinence and on their code of morality that the ASHA had invented. Um, and they created the CTCA to primarily to focus on training camps. So they put in theaters that showed films, um, they would build libraries, and their goal was really to create a diversion so that men didn't go out to the various towns surrounding camps uh, and participate in the nightlife there. This was sort of successful. It also helped that at the same time they used military police forces, uh, local police forces, um, and state and national legislatures to pass laws criminalizing venereal disease, um, making it so that soldiers who contracted venereal disease could be court-martialed. So there was kind of this carrot and a stick. Um, they were going to give you things to do instead of sleeping with prostitutes, but they were also going to make it very difficult if you did end up contracting a venereal disease. But the problem they quickly recognized was that a lot of the soldiers were coming into the armed forces already having venereal disease. So this program of education and enforcement needed to expand way beyond just these isolated training camps. And so they started a national platform of reform, which included um, a plan to build four human reclamation institutions in the eastern, southern, western, and northern parts of the United States, to which all prostitutes convicted in the federal courts could be sent for the period of the war. And when they wrote this, they didn't know the war was about to end. So it was very open-ended. Um, they were going to basically, their quarantine procedures would allow them to send <coughs> women away from the camps, which removes that danger, um, but also to sort of create these systems where the, the treatment would be done, um, in some cases, behind barbed wire, um, in detention hospitals. And this was kind of the really big stick that they had um, Planned. Ultimately, they did not build the four reclamation centers, but this was their this was their goal early on. And there's also this great poster um, that is kind of a testament to it. Says we fought in the open bubonic plague, yellow fever, and tuberculosis. Now venereal disease. So really, it's this recognition that they're putting this in the same context as the other major public health fights um, that they've already sort of in in their minds conquered. Um, so they're saying, 
public health has already tackled these issues, we can tackle this issue as well. So, how do you make that matter in Montana, which doesn't have any major training camps, does have a certain military presence because everyone had, um, you know, was interested in the war, and that's partially because it was everywhere you looked, Liberty Loans, um, the Office of Public Information. So the war is everywhere, but how do you make venereal disease specifically matter to Montanans when Montana has somewhat of a reputation for enjoying its red light districts, for being a wide open sort of place? Um, and so when you're trying to solve the problem of one in 10 men have either syphilis or gonorrhea, and five of them were already sick when they entered the service, how do you change it from a military problem to a civilian problem? And there's this great, uh, great newspaper clipping from the Broadus Independent. Um, it was actually published in 1919, um, and it talks a little bit about these efforts of the military to clean up their own image um, and to really create these moral camp environments um, where your soldier boy will be protected from booze and the Great Red Plague. Um, so Montana was already at least sort of paying attention, but the way to do it, and you can see here's a couple more um, great newspaper clippings. This is uh, from the Helena Independent, War on the Red Plague. Um, really interestingly, there's a somewhat creepy photo here that is talking about children whose uh, mothers had venereal diseases, which they had contracted from their partners. Um, and children were often born blind uh, because of gonorrhea. And so part of the way that they change it from a military to a civilian problem is to start talking about it in terms of family, in terms of how venereal disease affects people other than soldiers. And so the Montana Department of Public Health says, if it is necessary to have healthy men in the army at the front, it is also extremely important that the industrial army which supports the men at the front be healthy and as free as possible from diseases. So this is not a military problem, it's a family problem, it's also an industry problem, because if lost manpower days count in the military, they certainly count at Butte, where they're making ammunition, they certainly count when you're growing grain. And so they do, however, start to use an extremely militarized language um, which permeates, I think, probably every panel you've all attended has talked about sort of, it's the war against sedition, it's the war against um, immigrant, it's, it's the war against pro-German ideology, and in this case, it's the war against venereal disease, and they talk constantly about how this is a fight, um, it's a very much a military measure being fought on the home front. So, as I mentioned, the American Social Hygiene Association, that national organization, um, working closely with the federal government at this point, with the Commission on Training Camp Activities, and a variety of boards with very obnoxious names that don't shorten down very well, um, the, the, boy, the International Social Bureau of Hygiene is one of them. Um, what they're using these federal agencies to do is to harness the power of industry and the power of these federal overreaching agencies to spread information. So the American Social Hygiene Association for years has been creating pamphlets, passing them out, um, both through their scientific journal, through conferences, their participants in Europe, 
and now they have the power of the federal government behind them. So their publication ratchets up um, on an extreme level. And what they're able to do is sort of change the narrative around venereal disease. Can you tell I've never used one of these before? And they start passing out pamphlets like these. And I think both of these are also examples of it's not just pamphlets. Um, the model pamphlets do go out, but they also include films, which is a relatively new technology at the time, um, exhibits, which these are probably examples of exhibit panels that would have been placed in YMCAs, in rotary halls, in any public space where the public health board could come in and set up these panels. They set them up in schools as well. So they were really targeting children and trying to teach sexual health. Um, and until this point, sexual health was kind of a taboo subject. So not only are they trying to talk about venereal disease in really frank terms, but they have to get people to talk about venereal disease at all, um, which is part of their challenge. And the way that they do that, again, is to focus on family, especially. So this one says um, that this woman's life may basically be ruined forever if she marries a man who has an uncured gonorrhea infection. It's going to affect her children. It's going to affect all of them. And so they really put the pressure on soldiers and then on community men to, you know, think of your family first, and then hopefully you won't contract a venereal disease. And they also uh, publish reading lists in case reading uh, Tom Sawyer is more interesting to you than going down to Venus Alley and view. Um, I don't know how effective that strategy is. <laughs> But the, the films um, the films and exhibits represent this effort to reach people where they're at. So they're really, they're really making this a public health campaign. And so the government had actually created Keeping Fit to Fight. It's one of the first government films um, used in army training camps originally. It toured Montana via YMCAs. And by 1925,000 school-age boys had seen 50 lantern slides and 24 posters. So it's a very wide-reaching campaign. And then 42,000 pamphlets were printed for, by distribution, for distribution in the war years. And then by 1920, Montana, through its State Board of Health, had printed 154,000 pamphlets, of which they imagined 96,685 had been distributed to schools, clubs, churches, public health nurses, and health officers. So they were looking to make this as public as possible. They did that also by putting placards in hotels and businesses. So venereal disease went from being taboo and not talked about to a very, very clear, probably everywhere you look sort of subject. And you can see that in the newspapers as well. And it's also referred to as social diseases. But this is something that people are talking about in a very real way. The state also received aid from Lieutenant Colonel G.M. Magruder, who was an, a retired army surgeon, and he was tasked with organizing and outlining a plan of campaign and in arousing sentiment favorable to the establishment of clinics and isolation hospitals. So they brought in speakers from these national organizations who would then tour the state talking about venereal disease and talking about venereal disease laws. And when Magruder visited, he visited 22 cities from Miles City to Missoula, from Haver to Dillon. At the request of federal and state health officials, the cities agreed without hesitation or question to establish isolation hospitals. Magruder also reported to the Surgeon General that 
Helena, Butte, Billings, and Great Falls, the largest cities in the state, had agreed to establish free venereal clinics. There was also sort of this concept that you can go from the top down as much as you want. You can have all of these officials come and talk to people. You can bring in the military. Uh, but really, one of the most powerful organizations is the local organizations. Um, and so the Montana Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1921, um, they had long been an anti-vice of all kinds, anti-alcohol, anti-prostitution. Um, so it's not particularly surprising that in one of their meetings they included a frank talk of venereal disease. Um, perhaps what is surprising is that they chose to do the discussion before the picnic lunch and not after. <laughs> um, but they also, the Educational officials, um, they often targeted voluntary organizations like Rotary Clubs. Um, in this case, I have a picture of the Knights of Pythias. Um, but they also spoke to the Knights of Columbus Dental Societies and Societies for State Health Officers. So they're speaking to any group that will give them the space. 200 newspapers published weekly articles addressing venereal disease. And then uh, Rotary Clubs and Commercial Clubs also played a role in publicizing not only these educational speakers, um, but when it comes to the new laws and such. You see those reported over and over and over again in the newspapers as well. So really this educational campaign is pretty broad. But when it comes to what do you do about venereal disease where it exists? How do you actually address the problem before, you know, you can assume education has failed if they already have the venereal disease. So what do you do then? Um, and again, you see this really militarized language, the battle on venereal disease, druggists cooperating. Um, and this represents sort of the other arm of that national campaign, the legal enforcement of new laws. Um, the, on July 20th, 1918, the State Board of Health convened a special meeting and passed 11 regulations related specifically to venereal disease. And those wouldn't be codified actually until the 1919 legislature. So most of what's happening during the actual war is done entirely by voluntary organizations, um, which is an important commentary, I think, on how these movements gained the credence that they did in the state. So, but in July, the State Board of Health does get together. They pass a variety of different legal reforms. Most of them are targeted at prostitution, which is really interesting because they also are saying, we recognize that it's not just prostitutes that have venereal disease, but in that they are most likely to spread it via their profession, they sort of criminalize prostitution in a new way. And they enable medical professionals to quarantine anyone suspected of having a venereal disease. And the quarantine procedure would then involve a blood test, which hopefully, the uh, State Board of Health said hopefully they would uh, voluntarily submit to the blood test, but it was in the power of public health officials to involuntarily take a blood test uh, from those suspected of having a venereal disease. And then they would be held for roughly 10 days uh, while waiting for the blood test to come back. Um, and at that point, the medical official could decide to continue that quarantine or not continue the quarantine. The important part here, too, in Enlisting pharmacists and druggists, um, the national campaigns had focused on cracking down against quack doctors who were peddling cures for venereal disease that didn't work. Um, interestingly, during this time, um, there's not really a good cure for 
either syphilis or gonorrhea. Um, there is one medication called Salversan, um, and it's been around for a couple years. Uh, it was patented, I think, in 1910, but it's administered intravenously, and a lot of doctors were really uncomfortable with that. It's a relatively new thing. They don't they're not confident that they can do it successfully. So they continue the more widely accepted treatments for venereal disease, which involve mere mercury applications to the affected areas. So not popular getting a venereal disease treatment. People chose not to seek it out often and the diseases would go untreated or they would seek out the help of these quack doctors. Um, and both the American Social Hygiene Association and the Montana State Board of Health recognized this was not helpful. They needed people to go to real doctors, and then they needed those real doctors to turn around and report those infections to the state. And this is really an important distinction as well, because previous to 1918, venereal disease was not included in the list of diseases that needed to be reported. And so even if doctors were treating them, they were unable to sort of track trends in how many people were infected or in areas. And so by requiring physicians to report it, they, they also enable medical officials to quarantine. And quarantine was not uncommon. Um, a lot of people in Montana would have known all about that. They quarantined for tuberculosis, for various diseases. This is kind of misleading. It's a quarantine from 1942. Um, but they were public notices of quarantine, and that's a big change for venereal disease as well. It's really putting it in the public eye when you can say, you know, your neighbor across the street has syphilis. Um, but the venereal disease law actually very specifically said these reports do not need to be made public. They just need to be made to the State Board of Health. The picture here on the side is W.F. Cogswell. He served uh, in some capacity as an executive for the Montana State Board of Health from 21 to 45. Um, so he's one of the major figures both in this campaign and any other public health campaign of the time and interestingly in the eugenics movement in Montana. Um, and when you talk about people who are saying you have to do this for your family, a lot of times they're saying for your very nice white family, which we are promoting as a, as a social agenda. Um, and that would very easily veer into a totally different subject. But um, when they're talking about families, they're talking about a very specific conception of what a family means. Um, on the other side here, very small, so I'm sorry about that, uh, the Dillon Tribune reported too, if these are huge social campaigns, absolutely funded, partially by these voluntary organizations like the American Social Hygiene Association, they also are provided for... Um, Congress appropriates $2 million to be shared between the states uh, and Montana absolutely will get its share of those funds through the Interdepartmental Social Hygiene Board, um, but also through the American Social Hygiene Association, which is bankrolled by familiar names such as the Rockefellers. Um, and so there is a lot of money that's being devoted to this as well, money, time of volunteers, and time absolutely of state health officials. So. When they're going through their legal reforms, the state of Montana makes two important changes. Um, on August 26, 1918, the State Board of Health created the Division of Venereal Diseases under United States Public Health Service employee F.J. O'Donnell. For its first year, the United States Public Health Service covered the costs of operation. And O'Donnell reported that because so many men contracted the disease before they entered the military, 
This fact brings home, he said, the truth that these diseases form a public health problem for each state, county, and city to solve. This is not an easy task, but it is a fight worthy of our best energies and our best efforts. Failure to meet this problem fairly and squarely is a crime not only to ourselves, but to future generations. And there again, you see that rhetoric that this is a community problem because it affects not just men, but our families more broadly. The other major change, in 1917, the state opens a hygienic laboratory in Helena. Um, and I included this picture of the Capitol building because for the first year it operated, it operated out of the restaurant on the Capitol building, um, which they were very mad about actually in their report because they said, well, next year when the legislature is here, what are we supposed to do? They're going to need the restaurant. So you have to give us better money to fund a better hygienic laboratory. And their claims had credence for another reason. Um, they were the ones who, when local health officials would subject people to blood tests, this was the laboratory that they would send those blood tests to. And in the last three months of 1918, physicians submitted 116 tests for analysis, equaling more than the combined numbers of diphtheria and tuberculosis samples. So very quickly, the hygienic laboratory, which has is watching and testing for numerous types of disease, venereal disease quickly becomes the thing that they're conducting tests for. The laboratory observed that the blood test bids fair to take precedence over all others in point of numbers, and deservedly so, in view of the extensive campaign being made for the eradication of venereal diseases. They predicted a continued rise in the number of tests submitted for examination. By 1920, they requested an additional technician so that tests could be run five days of the week instead of three. And over the course of two years, physicians requested results for 6,497 venereal disease samples, representing more than 60% of the state laboratory workload for all communicable diseases. But it's not just the state laboratory. Um, it's also community venereal disease clinics. Um, the, these photos here, this is the Babcock Theater in Billings, which was a venereal disease clinic. Um, and on the side here is the uh, Phoenix Building in Butte. There was also a, is it? Okay. The, both of them were uh, venereal disease clinics. There was also one in Great Falls. Again, this is that effort to get venereal disease into people's public conscience and then to offer them treatment, which is a mercury treatment applied directly to the area. So we don't know how popular that was, but the State Board of Health was able to report that 56 people did receive treatment or were under treatment at the Billings Clinic. Um, and so when offered the medical treatment, people were taking advantage of it. Unfortunately, in addition to these free clinics and to the state laboratory, ultimately, there is not the infrastructure needed to care for people who have venereal disease, and certainly not when you're talking about isolating them or quarantining them. Um, many counties and cities had uh, already built detention hospitals uh, for things like smallpox and diphtheria, and so they used them again when it came to venereal disease. But what that meant, especially uh, in the case of a lot of counties, is that oftentimes detention hospitals were on poor farms, um, and that's the case for sure in Missoula. This is Missoula's poor farm. This is their detention hospital. Dubiously, this is Rattlesnake Creek, which is their water supply. So there's nothing like putting your detention hospital right next to, anyway. Their, uh, their detention hospital though, 
by conflating these ideas of detention and the poor farm, it ended up criminalizing disease in a really interesting way. If, for instance, you have a venereal disease and you're quarantined against your will, this is especially true if you're a prostitute, but you, you can't conduct your business anymore, and you certainly can't contribute to your family, and you certainly, you know, in the case of Missoula, you're removed entirely from your community, because at the time the rattlesnake was actually, um, was considered the boondocks of Missoula, basically. And so by isolating people at these types of facilities, it actually sort of contrasts with this educational effort, right? To say, if you have venereal disease, we can get you treatment. If you, if you need it, they sort of take them out of um, the city. So by 1920, the state reported the incidence of venereal diseases were decreasing in Montana and supported the idea of an industrial farm where you could send women specifically to get some kind of social rehabilitation. And the other portion of criminalizing disease in this way is that it unduly fell on women. Um, it was women who were arrested in that first case that we talked about. Um, it's women who are prostitutes usually and are, who are caught in prostitution stings. Um, and it's women who are often placed in these detention hospitals and at the poor farm. It's also true that World War I does not mark the end of the venereal disease fight by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it comes back around in World War II, and actually the American Social Hygiene Association again sort of champions this national campaign. Luckily during World War II, um, penicillin is medicinized, which actually does change the narrative for how you treat venereal disease and makes it much more effective. Um, but what World War I really represents then is a change in how government was policing sexual health. For the first time, the government was stepping in and saying, we have the right to quarantine you as a public health menace if you have a venereal disease. And that's a very large change from before the war where public health bulletins were not mentioning venereal disease in any capacity whatsoever. It's really this national campaign that changes that narrative in Montana. And of the 42 women, it's interesting to note that several of them did have their names written into the newspaper. And so, despite these efforts to sort of make venereal disease a less stigmatized thing, um, in some cases, their campaigns did exactly the opposite in the public perception. So that's the relationship kind of of education and legal reform in Montana based on venereal disease. Thanks.